being a fan, the identity of being a fan. And we identified that as this fluid fan that's going to move in between properties, in between consumption patterns. And that meant, which was crazy for the industry to get their heads wrapped around, that their fans were up for grabs. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where my partner, Joe Favorito, and I talk about the business of sports with lots of interesting executives and entrepreneurs, athletes, dignitaries from the business, and um, happy to be uh, reconnected for episode two of 2021 with my partner, Joe Favorito. Joe, how are you doing? And disruptors, Tom. We like disruptors. And disruptors, which we'll get into today. But uh, how's 21 going so far for you, Joe? It's going good. I'm looking out my window, watching deer fight each other. I guess we're trying to fight to figure out who's going to be okay. taking on one of the does, but got nothing so, to do so with it. So clear, clearly you've been working for home too long if you're staring at your window, staring at fighting deer. Um, yeah, it's a little bit uh, unnerving what we're witnessing right now with some of the issues happening in the live sports. I think we all thought by spring, uh, a couple months away, that things would be in a better place, but it's not looking too good. And I know the rumor that just circulated yesterday, John, I don't know if you have an update on this about the Olympics potentially being canceled. Uh, that was a, a, a body blow to the sports business, if it's true. Uh, do, do you know how accurate that report is? Uh, I don't. I know that our our part our guest today's partner has told some people that it is not true because she is on the uh, the Olympic uh, one of the Olympic committees. Uh, although the more you hear from people that it may become an inevitability, um, there were several reports before the Olympics. Were, and, and by the way, we're doing this towards the end of the middle of January, so anybody who's listening may already know this. Uh, either way, but uh, there were reports, you know, last year, the IOC continued to say, no, 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 we're not postponing the Olympics until, oh, by the way, we postponed the Olympics. So um, I hope it doesn't happen. I think, I think what could be done, there's lots of innovation that could be done around, whether it's all in Japan, whether it's without fans, who knows, but, um, you know, you certainly hope that it happens in a safe and cost-efficient way, but uh, we don't know. And, you know, I, I think, Right now, the thing obviously is on the horizon is the Super Bowl, which reports are 22,000 fans will be in uh, the building in Tampa. Um, you know, NBA All-Star Game, although they said there will not be an All-Star Weekend, there is still no definitive word on whether there will be an All-Star Game when they pause the season, the first half of the season sometime in March. March Madness, Tom, has now said that they're going ahead in Indianapolis. So some people listening to this in the future may say, oh, it happened or it didn't happen. But, you know, there's... There's no, there's no definitive word that baseball will start on time or on time, whatever that on time is, whether that's April or May. Um, but, you know, I think the one thing we can say is if you wanted to use a baseball um, analogy, from a COVID standpoint, I would hope we're now somewhere around the seventh inning where I think, you know, a month ago when you and I talked, I don't even think we had an official game. So uh, that's, that's the only thing that I think we can all hope right now. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's actually an interesting point because what we've seen, for example, in the world of politics, uh, going back to the summer when they had to do the virtual conventions mm -hmm. uh, for both parties, and then even the way the inauguration was handled, uh, really creative. And it's forcing people to rethink how they actually stage events, not just physically, but even how they do it digitally and seeing how they handle things um, this uh, week for the inauguration was really fascinating to me. And I thought in many ways they nailed it. Uh, regardless of your political persuasion, by the way, they just did a good job of staging an event that was uh, kind of online and offline. Um, and, and, I, and I think sports can learn something actually from the way politics has done some of this. I don't know who, Joe, do you know who's credited mostly with being the producer of this, of this uh, week's there was event? A company, there was a company that I'm not sure who it was. Okay. I don't remember. Um, but so, so a couple things, and we should move on probably to the resilient yes, of course. And innovation of, of where, uh, what our guests can talk about three things to watch from a sports business perspective that came out of the last week, other than Tom Hanks freezing to death, by the way, which was more bizarre. Right. Um, uh, Chuck's the fact right. that Kamala Harris admitted that she has 50 pairs of Chuck Taylors, and I cannot wait to see how Nike and Converse play that out. Number two is 
very rare Jordans that showed up on the, uh, the, the nephew-in-law of Kamala Harris during the inauguration, very rare sneakers. So sneakers suddenly seem like they're gonna become, um, especially in the sneakerhead collectible world, maybe a little bit more prominent. And I can't wait to see when the Kamala Chucks come out, which I'm sure they will at some point soon. Uh, and then the third thing is Peloton. Peloton mm -hmm. got a huge boost uh, because President Biden talked about bringing his Peloton and all the kind of strange things that they're gonna have to do to make sure that it's secure to whatever room in the White House where that Peloton is gonna sit. So three big pieces, plus Tom, all the references that came up during the inauguration, during the video that night, tied to sports, especially women, which I thought was tremendous. Mm -hmm. To have Kim Eng come up in the first part of a video around the inauguration of the President of the United States says a lot about the presence and the power of sport but also the evolution of women in our business, which is really important, especially given the craziness that happened with the New York Mets this past week, which I think yeah. will continue to, unfortunately, the old boy network, I think is gonna to continue to show its, its face in a way that we just don't need anymore. And I really wish, not that it would go away, but I really wish more people would be aware of it because it's terrible. All right, anyway. I just gotta got add one more thing before we introduce Josh. And that is, do you realize that Peloton, which went public, I believe in 19, got reached a valuation of over $40 billion last week. Think Good about luck with that. Those guys. I'm very happy for those but, guys. But think about that. Yeah. That's crazy. They have an they're... expensive bicycle. <laughs> That's one way to think of it. Yeah. But it just goes to show you, like, uh, despite all the uh, challenges and um, difficulties the businesses face of uh, the extended sports world that, that includes fitness. Uh, certain companies are just doing incredibly well, so good for them. Uh, although many others think that they will be acquired by Apple sometime in the next few months, uh, so we'll see. Anyway, let's talk about innovation. Let's talk about innovation, which is one of the topics and themes that uh, we've, we've covered a few times, but not in a way that we're going to do it today, because we really have one of the most um, experienced innovators in the world of sports uh, joining us today. Uh, Josh Walker, who is the president and co-founder of the Sports Innovation Lab, is known to many listeners, I suppose, who are paying attention to what's going on in sports research and the sports uh, business at large, because uh, his group um, has been so influential the last couple of years, really kind of dominating the world of sports research in an area mostly associated with technology and um, innovation that has become the focus of the entire industry for, for, for obvious reasons, especially as associated with the challenges that technology uh, is bringing to this industry. So um, we're really happy to have Josh here. He's got an amazing background that includes uh, stints at Forrester Research. He was an entrepreneur in residence at one of the big venture capital firms that's well-known General Catalyst. He's created some businesses related to uh, data and software. Um, and five years ago, teaming up with Angela Ruggiero, I, I think I pronounced her name correctly, you did. Um, created the Sports Innovation Lab out of uh, Cambridge, Mass. So we've had the privilege of knowing Josh for a while, Joe, but we've never had him on the show. So Josh, we're thrilled to have you. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Uh, I told you guys before we started, and I would love to do it on the record. Um, when we were starting the Sports Innovation Lab, one of the first places I came was to the Cusp podcast to learn more about the business. So I'm a data nerd, a research nerd, but uh, I definitely needed an orientation. And I feel like I've taken both of your classes on speed dial here. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you for saying that. We really appreciate it. So look, we, there's a lot of stuff we want to cover, but I, I, I guess... Um, I, I just like to hear the, the story of how your, your career culminated with this really important uh, venture that you have now with Sports Innovation Lab. Obviously, you started out, it sounds like you started in the research biz with Forrester. You obviously got exposed to the world of entrepreneurial uh, activities uh, in the early days of digital, you know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then you somehow figured out a way to get involved uh, or continue your career as a successful entrepreneur yourself. So just give us a little perspective on that before we 
uh, get into the sports uh, lab? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's I've come full circle, and I, I only go into my history because I know your students are listening. Um, I did start in sports. I was the voice in the crowd of the Vermont Expos in Burlington, Vermont. I wanted to be a sports writer. Uh, my buddy and I had a column in our Middlebury newspaper, and I was trying to make that a reality. I was uh, sending physical letters because we didn't do email as, as much as we did back then uh, to Bob Ryan at the Globe to try to get an internship. Um, I basically moved to, to Boston because I couldn't make the whole thing work in Burlington, Vermont, broke up with my girlfriend, did all those things you do when you're younger. And um, the internet was exploding. So you had a real opportunity to get in on the ground floor of some really interesting technology businesses um, which I think is it's also coming full circle, right? I also think that there's a whole nother wave of new digital businesses that are getting launched. So I see a lot of parallels in how I went from just trying to be a sports journalist to working in technology at Forrester Research. I just used my journalism and writing skills to start writing about technology. And because it was 1998, you saw all these new business models coming up. And a lot of them are back and, you know, there's a resurgence of this stuff. We talked about things like Peloton back then, you know, you were going to have this smart bicycle and it was going to be in your house and it was going to gamify the whole thing. And we talked about that in 1999, but there wasn't the internet, you know, community to make those things work. So I, I think what really has been a constant theme throughout my career and what you see in the sports innovation lab is a real opportunity and desire to try to use technology to do things at scale uh, in a big way to make change. And I don't think there's any better vehicle than sports to do that. So in 2016, you mentioned it, I got to meet up with Angela Ruggiero. I was trying to teach kids math by using real-time sports data. I had a partnership with Sports Radar. We were using real-time sports, trying to create that second screen experience for young kids so that they could sit next to their parents, watch the game, but also learn how to predict how many yards Tom Brady was going to throw for or how many you know, bases somebody was going to steal or something like that. And so you know, somebody said to me, you got to meet this woman. She's a four-time Olympian. She's super smart, you know, has a Harvard MBA. Um, and Angela and I had had coffee together, talked a lot about um, what we wanted to do with our life. Um, I was working with Isaiah Kozovinsky, who you guys both know at the time as well. Um, and we just really tried to, you know, put a new business model around what you guys called appropriately the old boy network. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of gut level decisioning um, being made. So we said, what if we brought data to the table and help people innovate with some real visibility uh, into what's happening in the future? Well, what was Angela doing at the time that uh, you got together? Uh, so what many people don't realize is Angela's hockey career lasted a very, very long time. I mean, this is a woman who was in four different Olympics. She's in the um, Hockey Hall of Fame. She was coming out of retirement. She was looking at different opportunities. She had already had a few different jobs um, in media, in finance. Um, and I think she was really trying to find the thing that she wanted to do next. She was looking at a few different opportunities to start her own business. Um, and so when I think she saw that we were in the formative stages of what we were doing with the Sports Innovation Lab, it was a perfect opportunity for her to give that shape. Wow. And so what did you do first? I mean, you obviously had entrepreneurial experience from your other uh, endeavors uh, uh, before this. What did you guys, you know, there, there's the idea and then there's the execution. So mm -hmm. it sounds like you were like-minded and uh, developing the idea, but you had to actually start building something. So just tell us about that experience and, and, and then how it evolved after you launched it. Yeah, I don't think it would have worked if Angela wasn't so smart and strategic and global. And those are, you know, a couple different things that make her very unique as an athlete. You guys have both met, I'm sure, countless athletes who come to you post-retirement or as they're getting ready to retire and they want to do a bunch of different things. And they sound like they've got a million different ideas and they're all over the place. Angela's not that. Um, she's got a lot of ideas and she's all over the place sometimes, but she's very focused on what she wants to do with her life and how she wants to use sports to create global change. Um, and she has a mission driven, you know, component to her that I think Joe's seen firsthand because he helps us with our leadership boards. She wants to change the world. And that's something I could buy into. So your question's a good one, but you really, when you find a partner like that, you give them the space to grow. And I just have to operationalize her ideas. And that was a very powerful position for me to be in. And I'm lucky to be able to do it every day. Yeah. 
So, so give some examples of that, of how you operationalize, because obviously, uh, you know, the way you describe yourselves on the website, the way you, you, you guys do your social media, it, it seems like you have an array of clients ranging from brands who are look, figuring out ways to deal with the challenges in sports to, I, I assume, leagues and teams and maybe athletes themselves. So can you talk about how you kind of built the framework um, to, to, to put yourself in position to get th those kinds of clients? Yeah, I, Angela will tell you a story where she was in the IOC um, and Joe referenced this in the intro um, where she was on the um, executive committee there. So right next to President Bach, a lot of decisions about where the games are going to be held and how they're going to be operating and everything. And she tells this story of like a lot of people making gut level decisions. And so she said, I, I couldn't believe how much money was being spent and nobody had any data to figure out, do the fans want this? who are the fans? What's going on? Like, and so she went to a whiteboard and really wrote the ecosystem out for me. You know, she, she mentioned the top sponsors. So I got to know how Visa and Intel and Coca-Cola participated in the games. Then she went through the agencies and she's like, and this is what Wasserman and GMR and CAA and Octagon do. And then she went over to the, you know, to the kind of athlete commissions and the, you know, NGOs and all these like different groups that get involved because they like the mission of the Olympics. Then the media companies, right? You had OBS and uh, NBC and all these other things and the, uh, the Olympic channel. So what I did from that framework was, and this is how we structure our business, Tom, it's like I said, okay, we have athletes that are going to go direct to consumers and drive media. We have media companies that are disruptive because they're creating new formats, but they also have linear broadcast rights. We have sponsors who spend a ton of money and they're changing the way they interact with you know, consumers all the time. And then we have these tech companies like, oh my God, here comes Facebook, here comes Amazon, here comes you know, Google. And they all wanna participate in this in a new way. And how do they get access to something that's locked up by the broadcasters? Mm -hmm. So you have real change dynamics, forces, all those things that make a market really interesting. And then you have an entrenched power structure, right? You guys know this so well, of billionaires who viewed this as a vanity investment and didn't really operate it like a true business. So the craziest thing about sports to me when I got introduced to it was all the glitz, all the glam, all the sexiness of sports. This is an industry that is a technology laggard. And I just couldn't believe how antiquated their CRM systems were, their networking, their hiring and staffing models were. It was just mind blowing to me. So Angela painted the picture I unpacked it and we created research streams that addressed each of those opportunities. So, okay. Eventually it seems like as, as the business evolved after the launch in 2016, you, you started to develop what became from what I can tell a laser focus on the fans, the changing nature of the fans. So tell us about that. Cause it feels like that was a, a bit of a, uh, an evolution for both the, I mean, obviously happening in the industry with uh, consumer behavior changing so dramatically, but also even for you guys uh, with your focus, is that fair to say? It was, yeah, it was an inflection point. I think what we anticipated going into this was that people needed help doing build by partnership decisions around technology. We came in and we said, we're going to help them make those decisions. What we heard consistently was they couldn't make those decisions until they figured out who their fans were. Now you guys both teach classes. Like, I did not know this. I did not know how blind the industry was to who was in their building, mm -hmm. who was buying their tickets, who was watching their games, what they were doing before, during, and after the game. So we really said around 2017, 2018, all of our technology research really needed to become about the fan. And we came up with this term called the fluid fan, where we identified the fact that technology from outside of sports, voice, mobile, OTT, you name it, second screen, smart TVs, all of the technology that we use for other purposes than just sports was changing the way that fans were behaving. And a lot of the fans were now going to the games a lot earlier. They were milling around, right? You have these mixed retail environments now, these smart stadiums where they would go play top golf. Maybe they'd go in, catch a quarter, 
go to the sports book or the fantasy zone or, you know, go out in the parking lot and have a few beers in the beer park, come back in. It became less and less about the game itself and more and more about the social experience, the Instagram walls, all the stuff that everybody made about being a fan, the identity of being a fan. And we identified that as this fluid fan that's going to move in between properties, in between consumption patterns. And that meant, which was crazy for the industry to get their heads wrapped around, that their fans were up for grabs. Mm -hmm. So so let's talk about, um, um, with that as a segue in the fluid fan, you guys came out with a pretty interesting survey uh, study this past week about clubs and the ones who are doing it right. Because... We could probably spend several hours about ones that may or may not be doing it right or are slow to evolve, but there was a lot of interesting stuff, especially around European soccer clubs that I think raised a lot of eyebrows and maybe ruffled a lot of North American feathers. Uh, but why don't you take us through that study in the eyes of the fluid fan in the eyes of what sports innovation did and how it came about and what was learned, especially with everything you just talked about, Josh, from the last year that can be pivoted going forward for people who may teams or leagues that weren't in that list. Go ahead, Tom. You have one more. Yeah, I just want to inject, interject something before Josh answers. I happen to have the report up, Josh, the, the fluid fan report, because uh, everything Josh talked about culminated with the January 2020 release of this report, which has become um, a, a bit of a Bible for me in uh, thinking about working in and teaching uh, digital media. But there's a line in here I just want to uh, read back to you uh, before you answer the next question. I know this eventually led to the uh, a deep dive into the innovation happening at the team level, but um, they they talk. There's a line that says, "We showed that the sports industry has gotten too comfortable assuming sports fans are here to say, but today with more options than ever, sports fans are drawn to other content and experiences. This is called the attention economy, which would be familiar to a couple of our producers, uh, Ben and Taylor." Uh, to keep the attention of fans, the sports industry needs to prepare for the fluid fan. So that was one year ago. The uh, 25 most innovative teams report, I think, was a few weeks ago. Um, but it feels like what you learned in the fluid fan report was the necessary foundation to do this next stage of taking a, a deeper look at specific executions. That's exactly right. I mean, everything we've done as a company has built. We did supply side research when we started the company to figure out what the sports tech landscape looked like. That gave us a sense of what technologies were impacting the fan. We then said, if all these technologies are out there, what is the fan? How do they behave? Oh, it's this fluid fan. Um, then we talked about like how fans are interacting with athletes more directly. So we had a report on athlete-driven media. We looked at how the venues were changing. So we had a report on designing breakthrough fan experiences, how the venue was becoming this new entertainment district. We looked at media and how media was changing, like the different formats, virtual reality, highlights, clips, things like that. So we, we said, here's the future of watching sports. And then the final thing we did last year was we talked about data-driven sponsorship, which is like, if you don't know who your fan is, how the hell do you personalize the sponsorship experience? Um, so all of those things, Tom, as you mentioned, are foundational elements to Joe's question, which is if you know where the industry's headed, how do you actually analyze which teams are in the best position to service those fans? Well, that would be a theoretical question if we didn't have COVID. COVID made it a very real operational question where you look at the industry through the lens of who was in the best position to respond this year when the lights were turned off. And the first answer to that question is clubs that operate and believe in revenue diversification. Revenue diversification, not, you know, different sponsorship activations, not sexy signage, not all that stuff that we come to think about when we say, how does the sports team create revenue? This is about revenue diversification. It means having different lines of business. So we look at esports. we look at women's properties. To Joe's earlier point at the beginning of the segment, it was like women's properties provide a whole other set of fan um, access and another format to play with and another property to manage and another reason to globalize. We looked at globalization and localization. How do you turn a real, um, 
live event into a tailored personal experience for fans in different countries. That doesn't mean what the NFL does and the NBA does to find distribution partners in those other countries. It means how do you make those experiences feel like they're germane to the people that live there. Revenue diversification was a huge piece of that research that you just mentioned, the top 25 teams. And the European football teams have done a great job of that. The second piece of it was organizational agility, which means are they setting up their organizations to look like their fan bases, to represent the voices that they serve? And unfortunately, or fortunately, the way that the European football clubs have done this is they've actually sold parts of their team directly to their fans. Now, there's some challenges in that model. You got to get consensus from them. It's like having stockholders. But like, that's a really important way to understand what the fans want. And then the final piece of that research and evaluating the top 25 teams was our technology focus. How aligned are they to the technologies that we believe matter most to the future fluid fan? You take those three things together, you get our top 25 list. And there's a lot of learnings in there when you look at who's number one, who's number 10, and who didn't make the list. And, and what specific um, metrics or KPIs were you looking at for each of those three categories in terms of quantifying all that? Yeah, so we did a lot of primary research on the revenue diversification piece. We tried to figure out who's already invested heavily in youth sports, in women's sports, in e-sports, um, who has um, part of a who's part of an ownership group, right? So the Kroenke group, like you got Monumental, you've got all these groups that people start to kind of understand. They're buying European clubs. You know, some of those European clubs are trying to invest in in youth properties in America. You know. Um, the Bayern Munich club has started academies here in the US. It, it was that sort of cross-pollination revenue diversification. So we were able to quantify that by looking at when those things occurred for revenue diversification, for organizational agility. We did a lot of primary research again on LinkedIn and other places to try to figure out how diverse are their management teams. Um, so a lot of DNI research, we did a lot of research on their data analytics groups right? Do they have a VP of analytics? Do they really emphasize their analytics group on their management team or, or um, you know, organization pages on their websites? Um, and so there's a lot of focus on that kind of thing. And then the final piece on the, on the technology, that's where Sports Innovation Lab has really cut their teeth. We built software that evaluates the industry by measuring how often a team like FC Barcelona shows up with augmented reality, how often, you know, Man City shows up with digital ticketing and microtransactions and things like that, that we know are, are going to move the needle long-term. Really interesting. Um, good. Yeah, no, no, Joe, go for it. I, I have a question, but you go first. So, so for those who haven't seen it, and we, we strongly encourage everybody to look at the list, uh, Manchester City was number one on the list. Um, how much, Josh, was impacted by the past year? Like, would that list, do you think, have looked drastically different if we were in a normal scenario with fans and stands and, and other things? Or... Did, did the research, it seems like, almost supersede that? And because everybody was really on the, almost on the same playing field anyway, I would imagine. Yeah, I, I, would, I would just have to think that the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball would have continued to do the glitz and the glam, right? We would have had more of the technology activations, the sponsorships, the big media events, and that stuff impacts our research because it gets quantified in our data engine as being like, oh, look, like the Dodgers, for example. The Dodgers got a lot of credit this year for technology. And we were like, well, that makes sense. They've got the you know accelerator. They've done some investments with Cisco and Intel in their stadium. We, but when we started peeling back the covers, it was actually Major League Baseball that got more of that technology association than the club. And our data shows that because it was the World Series and a lot of the things that got talked about in the context of technology innovation was really more associated with the league than it was with the Dodgers. Mm. And so if COVID had not happened and more live events were occurring, I think you would have seen a lot more of the same old, same old showing up in our data versus the newer innovation stuff. Cool. And just one other follow-up on that. It's interesting because people who don't understand how European football clubs are structured, they have much more control when you talk about Major League Baseball over what they can see and do and actually act on than 
like an MLB club, which really doesn't have control over their digital rights. Is that, would that be That's, fair to say? Yeah. And I'm really um, sorry. You weren't part of the leadership board meeting we just had because this was a huge topic, which is there's a really interesting sub topic that comes out of this research that's worth exploring in your classes, which is the organizational structure of leagues, right? right? Um, what Man City was quick to identify, what uh, La Liga was quick to identify was that a lot of these clubs have uh, um, acted as autonomous businesses for a long time. They've had to sell their own rights. They've had to structure their own business. They've had to internationalize on their own nickel. And they've done that. A lot of the clubs in the U.S. rely on the centralized command and control structure of the North American mm -hmm. leagues, and there's both recognize this. There's definitely pros and cons of both structures. The La Liga is starting to emulate what the NFL does by consolidating media rights sales so they can get the same premium. But at the same time, to your point, Joe, the clubs get to innovate a little bit more because they built those in-house skills. Barcelona Studio is an example. They do their own things like Red House production does. There's a uh, Red Bull production does. So it's like they have in many ways been forced to act more autonomously because of the league structure. Yeah, that's really interesting, guys. If you think about Joe, well, both of it, Josh, I, I know you probably were paying attention in the early days, although you're not in, were in the, you were not in the business per se. But when MLB Advanced Media was created and Joe was at 1999 or 2000, yep. uh, the idea was to um, create an entity that could take advantage of all these new opportunities that the internet and digital presented. Um, but in a way, um, and I never really thought about this until this conversation, some of those restrictions that were put on the, the clubs, which we used to debate, by the way, at the NHL back in that same era, because we did allow the clubs to do a lot of their own independent things, actually probably stifled innovation, because ultimately, even to this day, Joe, unless I'm, uh, unless I'm uh, mistaken, the clubs don't do their individual websites or mobile applications. It's all done through MLB uh, Advanced Media or whatever it's called right. now. For, for baseball. Right. So think about that. So you're, going, so you're going from having the opportunity like in uh, Premier League is what, 20 clubs, um, they can all, it's, it's kind of a, a competition to innovate because they have that autonomy. Whereas in baseball, there's not really an incentive for the 30 clubs to mm -hmm. innovate, at least in digital, uh, because of the way it's structured. That really uh, is, uh, is interesting to think about. So, so Joe, I know, you know, we talk about Ted Leonsis and Zach and monumental a lot. And so I wonder if this is gonna to have to shift now, and I'd love to get both your opinions on that one, whether to unleash more innovation, you've got to really rethink some of those centralized restrictions. So here's, here's the, the other side, well, where I think, and Josh, the question I was gonna ask, which we can kind of get into off of your research is where this will go, especially with fluid fans in the future. But when you look at NBA now last year with this momentous decision to say, okay, clubs, you can now go sell your rights and bring in brands, a select number of brands from outside your market. And that means Europe and Asia. And actually when you talk about Monumental, Monumental now has sponsorships in Japan and China and the UK. And I'm sure they'll have one in Israel pretty soon now. And they've been, the most aggressive. And you look at the NFL, which let the Jaguars open their office in London, but are still restrictive on what they can do. But now the NFL, when you look at some of the teams, now you've got the Giants and the Steelers and the Chiefs starting to do business in Germany, which one of our former students is very much involved with. Um, so, so it's now changing. But I remember being in a meeting when NYCFC was launched at Bloomberg and they came in and, and City Football Group came in and talked about their business model. And there was someone in the room from the UK who said, what do you mean Major League Soccer is gonna tell us we can't sell NYCFC stuff and keep all the rights? If we wanna to go to Connecticut or Chicago, what do you mean by that? That, that's, that was literally foreign to them because of what they've done and with whether it's City Football Club in Australia, whether it's the things they've done in China, or obviously what they've done in the UK and throughout Europe, where it's been, you know, and that's how Manchester United 
when they first did their deal with the Yankees, came to the States and said, we can do whatever the heck we want. We're not you know, beholden to the Premier League. So I think it's evolving both ways. You mentioned La Liga, which is really interesting because they are a partner of our program. And the interesting thing that they've really tried to do is figure out how to present La Liga without Madrid and Barcelona, who have already built businesses and figure out how they grow the other clubs and then hopefully bring Madrid and Barcelona along. Um, but, you know, I think you're going to see more of a globalization, especially as revenue is needed now in the States for the, the North American teams to try and be a little bit more innovative. But frankly, in the last year, it's been a struggle given the pandemic for NBA teams, especially to go and sell partnerships abroad when they can't physically go there and they can't bring people here. So Josh, I defer to you on, on both sides. I don't have the answers. I think what I think is even crazier is that this is where the athlete driven piece comes in, right? Mm -hmm. Now you have star driven leagues and you just mentioned, you know, some football clubs that have some pretty big names. Um, you know, our friend at Dan Cohen, uh, Dan Cohen at uh, Octagon follows this stuff very, very closely. He calls it the Ronaldo effect. He calls it, you know, um, the uh, the effect of Harden moving to the Nets. It's like, you know, you see ratings skyrocket. Those guys know their bargaining power and they can also go direct with shoulder content and Instagram content and Facebook content. And the athletes themselves can be disruptive to the league's business model. And so, all of these dynamics are coming to this, you know, ahead at the same time that the industry is creating an enormous amount of debt. You have the private equity guys circling, you have the SPACs circling, and there's just, I mean, like, we're not going to recognize a lot of this 10 years from now. I agree. Josh, I want to go back to this point about the, th the three components uh, that you used to identify or, or to judge the, the different efforts. So you had revenue diversification, uh, just checking the report. As yeah, I, organizational right. agility and technology. Uh, and then technology, yeah. right. So that's an interesting question because based on the structure of these leagues and these organizations, you can, you can be highly challenged to actually do well in some of these areas because of yeah, some simple a, legal, legal restrictions, you know what I mean? It's not a popularity contest. It's a right. recognition that like these businesses are set up for success in the new age of sports. So right. our goal is not to say, hey, you know, and this is the way the industry works. Every, this industry is so ego driven. It's unbelievable. It's like, why aren't we on the list? Why are we this number, that number? If like, if you're asking us what number you are, you're already in trouble because what you should be doing is That's looking true. at this list and saying, how do we improve our position based on what you just said, Tom, which is yeah. based on the restrictions we have from the league office or right. based on the dynamics that we have with our player contracts or based on the problems we have with the players union. Those things are structural. They're not going away. So how do you diversify revenue in that environment? How do you create a new organization in this environment? How do you recruit from outside of the industry and get data skills to come in when you're used to taking interns from colleges and paying them nothing and letting them grow into your organizations? This is about being purposeful in the way that you run your business. And for a lot of people in this industry, that is just really hard to drink. Right. And, and this, in many cases, absence of revenue diversification has created a situation, the situation we have now, which is uh, I, I think we'd all agree, an over-reliance on the TV rights deals. Yeah, it's complacency, um, yep. Right, and, and the result is, back to the fluid fan concern, Josh, is that you've got a lot of young people that essentially reject some of these core premises of the old model, of the TV industrial complex model. So, yeah. Joe, this is reminding me of the conversation we had a few months ago, I think it was last summer, with Liz from Little League. Yep. Remember when you were asking her about whether they put patches on little league jerseys or something on the outfield fence or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. she said, well, they wanted to keep a certain level of purity or whatever. A and I said, well, I, I think we would be less offended as fans with patches on jerseys and sponsor logos on walls. If you figured a way to reduce the ad load on ESPN, when you show your games, which is about 16 minutes out of every 60. Yeah. So I, I want to get Josh's opinion on that. Joe knows I love to rant on this topic. I oh, just, I just this, I reje think, yeah. this rejection, I just, this rejection of interruptive advertising, which is so central in the business model of the way most people experience sports. Yeah, I, I 
I mean, philosophically, I'm on the same page. I'm not a media buyer, planner, and advertising expert, but I do know that the um, new wave of monetizing fans will not be advertising. It will be through microtransactions and digital collectibles and the things that you know are very popular on Roblox and Fortnite and Minecraft and, you know, you, you name it, right? Um, Rocket League, the, the, the ability to buy digital skins and avatars and personality driven things online is, is so adjacent to sports. Mm-hmm. So right. where the hell is it? You know, is it the digital rights management? Is it the protective shield that nobody wants to be able to monetize this stuff? Like there needs to be a whole new mindset in sort of letting this stuff run rampant on the internet so that people can buy trade and things like that. I've been on record talking about NBA top shot. If your audience doesn't know it, check it out. It's with Dapper labs. Um, the European football clubs are doing something similar. It's digital collectibles, highlights in packs, just like Panini, uh, just like tops have created baseball cards and, you know, for years and generations, it's now the digital format of that. And there's a whole ecosystem that's being built around trading, buying, selling, un- unpacking. They even look like packs, you know, in the graphical right. format. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it's appealing to both generations. It's it's the collectibles of the older generation that wants to own something special. Everyone has a unique code to it because it's blockchain and all that other cyber stuff. Um, but the younger generation just wants to be able to, you know, represent that they've got the coolest stuff. It's part of their yeah. image. But but interestingly, Josh, and, and I, I again, this is a kind of more nuanced point uh, that we've talked about a bunch of times in the show. And that is when these rights deals are done, and this goes back to the late 90s when, when I was doing this on the other side of the desk, um, you'd want to do the best possible deal, typically financially. That was the, that was the first metric you were being judged on. In other words, how much money can you get? And term, and, right? The and, length. Right. Yes. Yeah. And the term. Um, but over time, properties that have been, that have been looking to please their masters, the masters they serve, typically the owners, to they more often than not you want the deal that pays the most money and if there are compromises that are made on let's call them digital rights or digital opportunities so be it so what happens in a lot of deals is that the tv deal uh, piece will be optimized or maximized but there will be restrictions limitations on what can be done in digital and as a result you don't get that creativity that innovation that you need and that is not really changing because these properties are so eager to be on television even at the expense of their long-term digital positioning clay christensen innovators dilemma you know blockbuster netflix you know you name it you got to be able to disrupt yourself from within yeah mm-hmm. um speaking of disruption uh before we get to a couple of closing questions and then our final point josh can you touch on some of the the things that stood out that people should know uh, top line, some some really in, innovative things that clubs, and not just the European clubs, there were a couple of NFL and NBA teams in the top 10, uh, what they did to make the list that people should be looking for and be, be rewarded for their innovation. Yeah, so we rewarded clubs that first of all, first and foremost, really took a, a vested interest in building an organization that valued innovation. Um, and that seems subjective, but there were a lot of metrics that you could obviously point to to make that real. Um, an association with an accelerator program, um, an association with a venture fund, an association with a large technology partnership. Um, you know, the global footprint of their partnerships. Are they farming locally or are they, you know, aggressively expanding? Um, they're owned and operated OTT channels. And that largely led to a larger uh, perspective, which is they need to be collecting first party data from their fans. So what platforms are they doing to that? You know, a lot of these clubs are beholden to Facebook, Twitter, um, TikTok to know what their fans are consuming. So they're buying third party data. If you're in a position of strength and a lot of these European football clubs are, a lot of the uh, NBA teams are with some of the platforms they've used like home court and overtime and live like and others, like they're collecting first party data. So we, we, we really emphasize that as a way to measure, you know, the, the proximity to innovation. Josh, um, before we wrap up with these questions, got to ask you about the future um, and if, see if you'd be willing to make a couple of predictions. 
Hmm. So <laughs> you're as knowledgeable as anybody we know on this uh, current uh, environment related to the technology disruption, the changing fan attitudes and behavior, et cetera. How do you think this will, all that will manifest itself over the rest of this decade? Do you, do you see the business being really disrupted, the, the, the power ranking, so to speak, being disrupted by the end of the decade? I do. I mean, that's okay. a short. We need more, we need more detail than that. <laughs> need more. Um, look, the, the, the gaming engines are the easy way to kind of point to what you think is going to happen. So look at the live entertainment um, environment around concerts. Um, we've, we've pointed this out before, but like having a, a concert on Fortnite or having a concert on one of the gaming engines where, you know, virtual fans can com communicate, collaborate and everything else. So, and we, we had to do watch parties as a result of COVID. So you had Scenic and Live Like and these other companies that are creating that, you know, Verizon did this, you know, like where we can all do this together. We're all looking at each other, I, I, you know, and watching a live stream and synchronizing that stream. So a lot of the live sports experience is going be very different we're going to be betting with each other like on a zoom like twitch like experience where we're like hey you know the next goal is so and so or the next you know yards of these guys and we'll, we'll be doing that it'll be much more transactional all of our viewing platforms will have our credit card information already loaded into it whether it's DraftKings or FanDuel that's you know riding shotgun to those experiences it's all going to be very interactive linear broadcast is very passive very lean back that's not a huge uh, prediction that's just inevitable it's moving yeah. that way COVID accelerated all that very cliche to say all these things but yeah I think it's going to be a very different experience and you'll have very different players at the top of these rankings in a few years yeah I mean even even just in terms of the popularity of specific sports do you see because one thing we often forget about is that we we ignore the fact that at the bottom line as um, as we analyze these businesses we are we do need to think about the core, core quote product, like what is the product? And the product is a game and the game has different approaches, different structures, different rhythms, et cetera. So the, the stop and start nature of an NFL game where you've got three over three hours of broadcast with 11 minutes of action or a baseball game with a similar thing. Like, do you see the core products needing to evolve as well? You know what I mean? Yeah, like I think, being I think so the bold product, as to change up the game rules? Yeah, I think the product is the brand, not the game. Um, and I think the product has always been the brand, not the game. Um, and I think the more the industry understands that, the more the game becomes multiple formats. And to your point, if, if, if the game becomes multiple formats, is that multiple products, right? Is the fourth quarter one product? Is the highlights one product? Is the co-watching thing one product? Is the gambling thing one product? We're going to take that unit, which has been a game, and we're going to decompose it into all these other things that are going to be products. And you're going to license them differently. You're going to subscribe to them differently. You're going to share them differently. Um, I think that's what's going to the uh, you know, atomization of the game maybe mm -hmm. is a is a good way of thinking yeah. about it mm -hmm. um but the craziest point about that prediction is that most of these clubs and most of the media companies don't have the talent the the people to think like product people to think like multiple subscription-based service people and to break it all down build the pro formas build the business models that allow that to happen wow and, and by the way and, and if they do come in they are looked at askance by people. That's right. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah. Well, you're going to get in my way. I'm going to go negotiate this huge rights deal that Tom was talking about. You know, I'll do one deal. It'll take up 50 of your little products over there. So mm -hmm. you, you go play with your little sandbox and I'll go do my rights deal. And at some point it catches up. It's hey, funny. Uh, go ahead, Tom. I just want to actually mention one point. I don't know if you guys saw this the other day, but uh, this is the 25th anniversary of the launch of Fox Tracks, the so-called glowing puck. Oops, the, so the, the other plane. night, uh, so the yeah. other day on PTI, uh, Wilbon and Kornheiser are going back and forth on it, and Kornheiser uh, said, "Of course, the purists hate the purists hated it because the purists hate anything new." And then I, uh, awful announcing, I think tweeted that I. I tweeted it and said something like, um, yeah, like at this point, innovators greater than purists. Like, yeah, that, look at the Nickelodeon thing. You want to take that. Right. And Joan, I, I was, I was going to say, it feels like, steroids. you know, yeah. if, if you've got back to the last point you guys just made about the people in the room that are helping make these decisions, 
if I'm a commissioner or the president of a company, if you are, if you would dare call yourself a purist at this point in history, I don't want you working for me. Mm -hmm. I think that that a lot of people believe that and feel that way now. And I don't think they did. And I don't think they did a year ago, Tom. And if if they call me, if they were to call me sacrilegious, I'd say then call me sacrilegious. I don't care. I just know that uh, I buy into the disruption that is happening because it's now quite evident. And and the fact that you guys have been able to quantify that, Josh, I think is a huge service Mm. to the business. So this is an honest, this is, you've approached this in a very intelligent, strategic, uh, data-driven way, as you noted. And I think that's what the industry needed. Like it's got to come to terms with these issues. We're objective. We have no dog in the fight. Um, So like a lot of people come to the analysis of the industry through uh, a particular bent or, you know, goal. Our goal is to advance the industry's, you know, profitability, get them closer to the fan. And honestly, we were talking about this before they even started. We, we want to change the world. We're a mission-driven company. We want to change the world. We want to get kids moving again. We want them to have something to aspire to other than sitting in front of a game console. Um, game console, if it connects to their physical activity, all better. Like we're not going to fight that battle. We're going to try to use it and leverage it and you know amplify it so that kids feel the, the power of sport in the future. Nice. Uh, last question. Was your mind properly blown? Um, it, it's, it's appropriately. I have one more question before yeah. we get to the last two. Um, Josh, when you guys did the analysis, were there one of two wow things that came out from a club that you'd like to mention or a team that came? Like, I had no idea that they did that. Um, well, we, yeah, we gave the Vegas Knights a lot of credit. They didn't make the list. Um, not a lot of NHL teams um, have the flexibility to do what, what we see others doing, but what the Vegas Knights have done and with full disclosure, they were a client last year. Um, they do game time, which is like, they have this nighttime thing where before game time, there's nighttime and nighttime is like DJs and like a whole nother experience that happens before the game. That kind of goes to the point, Tom, you were talking about earlier where we atomize the game itself and we create different day parts to it that have different experiences, different access points, different things. So I want to mention them. Um, The other thing that I would say is, again, and I referenced this a little bit earlier, um, Juventus, uh, you know, huge diversification in their business models. They've got like hotels, they've got all these different things that allow them to, you know, if the lights are turned off, continue to make money. Um, And a lot of the clubs, uh, in Europe to have relationships with universities where they're building their own di- uh, data analyst talent um, and using those relationships to almost formalize uh, recruiting and talent development and professional development. Cool. So uh, last two questions. Um, I'll throw out the first one. Uh, where do you get your information? How do you stay up to date with all the stuff, especially with Sports Innovation Lab, always looking forward and not really as much on the traditional. So where do you get your information? Yeah. Um, so this might sound self-serving, but from our app, um, app.sportsilab.com. Um, anybody can sign up for it. Um, it's our natural language processing. I don't turn to any one source. I turn to that because it's an aggregation of all the industry sources. So if you read Sport Techie, uh, Sports Business Journal, Front Office Sports, Sports Pro, you know, you name it it's in there. Um, And the beautiful thing about it is because it's natural language processing, we pick up blogs, we pick up, um, you know, journalists that are writing about something that mentioned teams that have, you know, different things that are outside of our traditional ecosystem and and, uh, echo chamber, if you will. Um, So that really becomes my go-to source. Great. And Josh, is that, that's a downloadable native application? No, it's a web app. So you can actually just go on and, uh, you know, create a username and password and you're in. Wow. Uh, Joe, I, I I didn't know about that. I, I feel that's why we're here. Yeah. Well, thank you, Josh. No, that sounds really good. Um, Last okay, two. yeah, and uh, Josh, can you um, share some career advice for those listening, particularly those people that are developing their careers or potentially uh, transitioning careers, as you did a couple of times? Yeah. Look, I mean, I think I I, I mentioned a little bit of this at the beginning. I I didn't have a goal other than to try to do something um, different and worked really hard at it. Um, When my friends were all sort of partying and things like that, I was a little bit nerdy in the beginning of my career, stayed late at at work and, you know, was there until like 11 o'clock at night. And 
I, I just got religion on work, work ethic a little bit after college, not in college. Um, so that, you know, putting in that extra time and effort, especially in your first two or three jobs um, is really, really important. And then I think the most important thing is to work at a small company. Uh, don't have to work in sports, work at a small company um, because the people that work for Sports Innovation Lab, we're about 15 people. They get direct access to Angela and myself. They get to sit in on our meetings. They get to sometimes interface directly with clients. Um, that experience is just unimaginably important um, when you try to think about what do you want to do when you grow up um, and to see how leaders work and talk and communicate and position themselves, um, I think is a very important skill to develop. That's really, that's really good advice. This is a, um, an ongoing conversation Joan and I have with students and younger friends about the, uh, the debate as to whether it's better to be in a large company such as a sports league or perhaps with an early stage or startup. Um, well, specific, no... Yeah, specifically on that point, work outside of sports, then go into sports. If you start yeah. in sports, you're never going to develop those outside of sports skills that we're all talking about here um, that are so valuable to the industry. Oh, yeah. I, mean, it's possible. I think it's possible in a startup environment where you get mm -hmm. diversified view and work with entrepreneurs and stuff like that, mm -hmm. but whatever. Um, that's really terrific. Thank you. Uh, Joe, anything you want to add? Um, I think, oh, first of all, more importantly, Josh, how does everybody find all the information, especially? Oh, yeah. Good question. How does everybody find, I'm sorry. The study and how do they oh. follow oh, you? Sports, yeah, sportsilab.com. Um, you can find everything. We do AMAs, um, Ask Me Anythings with industry leaders. Um, we have podcasts um, that Angela runs, our Fluid Fan podcast. You can find that probably on Spotify and anywhere else that podcasts are. If you're listening to this, you'll find that. Um, and I think that uh, you can follow me on Twitter, although I don't use it that much. I do use LinkedIn a lot more, um, but my company's relentless. So just follow Sports Innovation Lab and you'll, you'll see us. I can guarantee oh, yeah. you that. But before we wrap up, I do want to thank you both. Um, again, I've been a huge fan of this podcast, but also of both of you. And I've seen you in very different scenarios throughout my short career in sports. Um, people have an enormous amount of respect for both of you. And I really appreciate you having me on. Appreciate that. Great. That's very nice. Well, the feeling's mutual, Josh. Um, you guys are at the top of my list for go-to research now all the stuff I'm working on and teaching. So uh, keep it up. Um, I, by work, the way, I'll make, one, I'll make yeah. one free suggestion to you. Uh, now, that, now that you've identified the top 25 teams, most innovative teams, uh -oh. I, I, I'd like to, <laughs> what do you think? Well, let me, Joe and I have been doing this for a long time. So Joe, what do you think I'm going to say next? The bottom 25. <laughs> no, I was going to ask for a version that focused specifically on leagues. Oh. Yes, it's coming. We're going to do leagues. We're going to do venues. And then good luck with the publicity around that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're going to do, we're going to do leagues. We're going to do venues. Um, we're going to try to apply this model to college sports. Um, and, you know, anybody who reads this study will find that we used as a filter, the top 10 revenue grossing leagues. So there are a lot of leagues that fall outside of that, um, yeah. that we, we owe um, some analysis to. And uh, obviously there's UFC fighting and, you know, um, NASCAR and other properties. We got to figure out how to do that stuff too. Cool. Joe, what, Joe, what would any sports business be without a list? We need more lists. We need yeah. more lists. Hey, do, do, <laughs> do, do, Bleacher do Report we. built their business on lists. Yeah. Uh, so. and, and Sports Business Journal, yeah. uh, or at least in the last 15 years or something. Well, um, hopefully, hopefully we can build our business on objective lists that no, the I industry know. can I trust know. and uh, we'll take it from there. Uh, Josh, just, just don't turn them into like BuzzFeed type listicles. No, avoid, avoid they that. will not be BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed listicles and you won't have to uh, buy a table to celebrate your you know, position on the list. Ah, perfect. I love that anyway. line. Yeah. All right. Um, well, Josh um, Walker from Sports Innovation Lab, thank you so much. Really fascinating conversation. Uh, really appreciate all the work you and Angela and the rest of the team are doing. And we urge you to keep it up. Um, keep pushing. The industry needs you. Um, and I hope it continues. Well, I think we all need this industry. So it's, uh, well, it's we all need this industry, related. but I think this research is really critical at this uh, juncture in history. Uh, I, I, right now. I, I agree. You guys stay safe. Thanks for having me. Great. So thanks everybody for listening. We've had uh, the president and co-founder of Sports Innovation Lab, Josh Walker on and everybody check him out and the innovation lab out for all the uh information they're sharing that's so valuable so thanks everybody for listening 
Joe, thanks for a good show. Thanks to Taylor and Ben for producing. We'll see everybody next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.